What's up? This is the Cycling with Watts podcast. We are on episode number eight. Cycling with Watts, the Ocho. That was an absolutely terrible joke, so I'm sorry that you had to endure that for. If this is your first experience on the Cycling with Watts podcast, that was a, a terrible segue into into the show, really. So uh, only uphill to go from here, which in cycling that uh, that does suck if you only have uphill to go, unless you really love climbing, then I mean, then you really do have uphill to go. So what are we talking about today? Well, we got the Vuelta going on. We got the Tour of Britain going on. We got some women's racing to get into with the Bowles Ladies Tour. That just wrapped up. We're going to get into some tech news. And let me tell you, I have the bike for your newly born child. This is going to make them the Tour de France winner. This is going to make them better than Eddie Merckx, better than Chris Froome, better than Pantani. This bike is going to make them better. So please stay tuned for that new bike for your newly born child. Then we're going to get into some maintenance and we're going to be talking about cleats. I mean, what is more exciting than talking about cleats? But it is one thing that probably goes unnoticed a lot of the time and when to swap it out, how to swap it out, what's the best way to do it. Get into that. Then with training tips, we're going to talk about eating because one of the best parts about cycling is that you get to eat while riding your bike. That's one of the reasons I definitely got into cycling. Growing up, I wrestled, played baseball, played football, kind of did a whole bunch of sports, but in high school, wrestled in baseball, and it, it sucked in wrestling that I couldn't eat while actually doing my sport. I really couldn't eat at all because you're just trying to lose weight the whole time, kind of like cycling. But uh, baseball, you can eat while you're playing. Cycling, you can eat while you're riding. It's the best thing in the world. But what should you be eating out on your ride? When to eat it? How often do you eat? Stuff like that. So we're going to get into eating. That, that's the episode. So let's uh, let's jump into it. Let's play that sting music and welcome to episode eight. Jump on in to the Volta. So the Volta España is going on in Spain right now. We are 10 stages in as of today. Today is Tuesday, September 4th. I almost said August. I was really close to saying August. And I don't know about you, but I'm I'm very sad. Summer is it, technically it's over. We still have a ton of fall riding left to do, so... I mean, like, the riding season isn't over, but still, summer is over. The hot days of 80, 90 degrees, humid, just so much sweat going on in your cycling kit. It's over. It's, uh, it's definitely a new chapter to the cycling season, so that is somewhat exciting, but oh, I just love the summer. I love just that the rays of sun beating down on you while you are cycling and getting those epic tan lines that we love to share on Instagram, but your significant other absolutely hates because basically like half of your body looks like you're always wearing a shirt and shorts. And when you walk around at night, it basically glows. At least that is in my case, my chest and stomach just like glow in the middle of the night. And so, yes, I love it. Fellow cyclists love it. My wife, though, hates it. So it's a difficult battle, you know? You got to weigh the, the pros and cons, but uh, cycling 
if it's cool for for my cycling friends, then yeah, I'm probably gonna do it. So okay, that is way off topic. Summer's over. It's uh, it's currently raining outside, so that's a little bit depressing too. But we're getting into fall, into new stuff. So the Volta though, back to the Volta where it is sunny, it is hot, it has been very hot there, and that has definitely played a a role and factor in some of these stage outcomes. But last podcast, episode seven, we left off on stage seven. So who won stage seven? It was a 182-kilometer stage from Puerto Lumbreas to Pozo Alcon. And like I said, if, you, uh, if you're if you new to this podcast at all, I uh, am absolutely terrible with Spanish, so I'm going to butcher so many of these Spanish names, and I apologize for that, but I'm terrible at it. I'm going to do my best. And so who won that 182-kilometer hilly stage seven? It was Tony Gallopan. Tony Gallopan won that stage. And then we moved over on to stage eight, where the ageless Alejandro Valverde won yet another stage. It was 195 kilometer stage from Linares to Almaden. It was a hilly stage. And Alejandro Valverde picked up his second win of the Volta. If you remember, he won back on stage two, which was classified as another hilly stage. And Alejandro Valverde rides for Team Movistar. And, uh, yeah, he just keeps defying age because he's 38 years old, and yet he's still kicking butt on, on the biggest of stages. Now, Alejandro Valverde is a former Walto winner, so he definitely has the experience. But uh, even though he's kicking butt, he's still riding for Nairo Quintana. We'll get into general classifications after today's stage two, where we'll talk a little bit more about Valverde. So stage nine, mountain stage, 195 kilometers from Talavera de la Arena to La Covetia. I thought that was pretty good. Probably one of my better ones. 195 kilometers, which if you don't know, 121 miles. Mountain stage was won by, I said miles, because Ben King. Dimension data. He is from the U.S. picking up stage win number two. Number two. An American win in two stages in a grand tour. It's a great time to be an American. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Thank you. Thank you for all those who just raised their hand as they're driving on their way to work. And, and uh, you know, it's amazing to see an American winning two stages in a grand tour. It gives you some hope for the future. There's been, uh, you know, Sepkus of uh, Lotto NL Yumbo. He's been riding well in this tour as well. And so there's been some excitement about around American cycling even in a time where some American cycling is folding with teams like UHC. So there is some hope for the future on the biggest stages. So, yes, Ben King won stage nine, mountain stage, 195 kilometers. He won another mountain stage back on stage four. That was 162 kilometers. So Ben King picking up his second win of the Volta. Then today, well, and then we go September 3rd, yesterday, Monday, Labor Day. Hope you had a great Labor Day, by the way. Maybe you got out, did some cycling, and then came back and just absolutely pounded some barbecue because that's what you do on Labor Day. I was up at a cabin, did some beautiful riding in some woods, and ate a lot, lot, lot of food. So good thing I did a little bit of cycling to offset that. But uh, September 3rd was a rest day for the riders. And then we get on to stage 10, which these two names I am just going to butcher so hard. So stage 10, 172-kilometer stage from Salamanca to Fermosel. 
from Marcel. Yep, that's uh, that was definitely butchered. But that's a flat stage, and who won it? No other than the sprint king himself of 2018, Elia Viviani of Quick Step Floors. This is his 17th win of the season. Quick Step Floors is absolutely just tearing it up. I believe they just hit 60 wins total as a team over in the Tour of Britain as well because we're going to talk about another winner there uh, after we get done with the Vuelta. But yes, Elia Viviani took another stage win out sprinting, you know, the great, the loved, the entertainer, Peter Sagan. Also, showerhead, uh, you know, master of the showerheads. I don't know if you guys have seen this at all, but Hans Grohe, the sponsor of Bora Hans Grohe team, they actually came out with a showerhead with a Peter Sagan limited edition showerhead that you can buy. And it sounds freaking awesome because who wouldn't want to shower with, I mean, one of the greatest cycling cyclists of all time, their monogram on a showerhead. That just sounds like cycling heaven. Like, I'm going to pick up more watts because I'm showering with that showerhead. So, side topic, but yes, Elia Viviani won stage 10 in a bunch sprint. And so, after stage 10, who is in red? Got to pull up the notes on this one. So, Simon Yates is in first place overall. He is wearing red with a very strong one-second lead over Alejandro Valverde, and that's where we're going to get back into Alejandro Valverde because, yes, he is in second place with Nairo Quintana, his teammate of Movistar, in third place, 14 seconds back. So 13 seconds back of Valverde, 14 seconds back of Yates of Mitchelton Scott. And then from there, we got Emmanuel Buckman, uh, Bora Hansgro, he is in fourth place, 16 seconds back. Ian Izagira of Bahrain Merida, which he's been riding really well. You know, he has been kind of a GC hope uh, for uh, maybe about two years now, but especially this year in the Giro. He was their leader of Bahrain Merida, and he's showing good signs here so far. So good for Ian Izagira of Bahrain Merida. He is 17 seconds back. Sixth, we got Tony Gallopan of AG2R Le Mondial, which he was stage seven winner, where he definitely uh, picked up some time and bonus seconds there. And he is 24 seconds back. Seventh place, we got Miguel Angel Lopez of Astana. He is 27 seconds back. Rigoberto Uran is in eighth place of EF Education First. Draft pack presented by Cannondale. Gosh, it's a hard one to say. He's 32 seconds back. Ninth place, we got Steven Kreuzwick. Lotto NL Yumbo at 47 seconds back. Rounding out the top 10 is George Bennett of Lotto NL Yumbo at 47 seconds. Some other big names to mention as well. David De La Cruz is in 13th place of Team Sky. He is a minute and 26 seconds back. We got former red jersey wearer of this tour or of this Volta in uh, 15th place, Mihail Kwiatkowski. Of Team Sky, he is two minutes and ten seconds back, which my heart wants Kwiatkowski to win. I love watching him race. He's a fun guy to race. He's fun to listen to on social media. He gives you know stage recaps every day. Just seems like a really good guy. Uh, I'd love to see him pull on red in Madrid, but I don't think that's going to happen. If you listen to my Volta preview show 
I thought that Simon Yates was going to win it. Just seemed like they had the Mitchelton Scott had the best team, and Yates being on form in the Giro for the most part of it seemed like one of the more likely guys to win the Vuelta, and he is now in red. Not that he has a commanding lead, but he is in red nonetheless. So some other big names. In 16th place, you have uh, Thibaut Pino of Groupama FDJ, along with his teammate in 17th place, which is Rudy Millard, who also wore red earlier this Vuelta as well. They are about two and a half minutes back. And then Ben King is the American, the highest placed American overall. He is at 18th place, three minutes back. So that's kind of your big names to uh, to keep track of. And so tomorrow we go on to stage 11, which is an intermediate stage, so a little bit more climbing than maybe a hilly stage, something like that. That is 208 kilometers, 130 miles from Mumbai, Mumbai, Mumbai to Ribera Sakti. Sakura, yeah, that that was really bad. These, yeah, these Spanish names are very. I'm really bad at butchering them, so I apologize for that. But yes, we are on to stage 11, and this week we have a lot of climbing. A stage 13, 14, and 15 are all 150 kilometers plus, well, 160 kilometers plus three mountain stages right in a row. 13, 14, and 15. Then we hit a rest day on September 10th. Then we come back to a time trial, individual time trial, 32.7 kilometers for stage 16 on September 11th. And so definitely looking forward to seeing that individual time trial as it is 32 kilometers, which will be great to see some of those GC guys really open up and they can really take some time on this time trial as the first time trial stage one was just eight kilometers. And in eight kilometers, yes, you can gain time such as like you know, a minute over somebody, but you're probably not going to pick up that much time over the GC favorites. A lot of them finished within, you know, 30 seconds of each other. So they really weren't picking up a ton of time, but 32 kilometers is definitely a chance for some of those GC guys to really break open a lead or lose a lead if they really butcher that one. And so that is stage 16, 21 stages overall. So we're getting down to the closing. Well, we're about, what, halfway through? Just just at halfway through of the Volta. And like I said, Simon Yates is in the lead. I still think he's going to be the best placed overall to – not best placed overall, but still the best shot to win the Volta with the team around him. But if you, if you got a chance to watch the Volta today – in the last 10 kilometers, it was just like, you get a flat, and you get a flat, and you get a flat. It, like every 10 seconds, I swear, there was somebody else on the road getting another flat tire. And Simon Yates was one of them, but they were still far enough back that it was a flat stage. So, you know, the peloton is all together at that point in the race, and they were a- able to get back to the peloton. But it was just like one right after another on the side of the road with a flat tire. So that was uh, interesting to see. But it shows that anything can happen in a Grand Tour. And it doesn't matter if you're first or if you are last. If you suffer a mechanical, you know, <laughs> luck is not in favor of, your, of what place you are in. So, 
You never know what can happen in uh, in three weeks, but I still think Simon Yates has the best chance overall to win the Volta. Second would be Nairo Quintana, which again, he was a favorite coming into it, so it's not like I'm breaking any news or ground with that. Same with Simon Yates, another favorite coming into the Volta, but with Nairo Quintana, third place, he's got a shot as well. So I think it's either going to be Yates or Quintana, unless something really bad happens to one of them. Again, Quintana is only 14 seconds back, and he's got a strong team around him, and especially Alejandro Valverde in second place right now, just the second back. You know, if something does happen to Nairo, they have Alejandro Valverde very well placed, so Movistar is definitely looking strong and looking in a great position to bring home a Grand Tour win. So, moving away from the Vuelta, let's get into the Bulls Ladies Tour. And so, I want to talk about Annemiek Van Vluten of Mitchelton Scott because she absolutely dominated this race. She was the overall winner. You know, of course, that, uh, that would make sense. She won three stages in this, and she was the points leader, which, of course, if you win three stages, you should probably be the points leader. But still, to pick up two classification wins is massive. And she beat the likes of Ellen Van Dyke of Sunweb. She beat Anna Vanderbregen of Bowles Dolman. Taylor Walls uh, from the United States. Leah Kirchman, Team Sunweb. Amanda Spratt. So she definitely beat some good names, which Annemiek Van Vluten is a very strong rider herself. She rides for the Mitchelton Scott team, but she uh, she won the Bulls Ladies Tour uh, 52 seconds ahead of Ellen Van Dyke of Team Sunweb. So did it in pretty commanding fashion over five stages, and yes, she won three of those five stages. So she definitely dominated that. Back over to some men's racing. We have the Tour of Britain. We are three stages into that stage one was taken by none other than the gorilla himself andre greipel of lato sudal that was in a bunch sprint he out sprinted the likes of caleb ewan mitchelton scott fernando gaviria quick step floors and uh yeah really showcased that even at his uh you know he's getting up there in age not that he's past his prime maybe just slightly past his prime but you know still be beating some of these very very talented young guys like Ewan and Gaviria. So, Greipel, one stage one. Then we move over to stage two, which was won by Cameron Meyer from Australia of Mitchelton Scott. He just barely beat Alessandro Tonelli of Bardiani. Definitely one of the Continental teams there. And Patrick Bevan of BMC Racing. Julian Alvleep was also in the mix there, taking fourth just two seconds back. Primos Roglic was in that mix. Wow, Pauls was in that mix. Bob Youngles. So definitely some big GC riders for the Tour of Britain on stage two were much in that mix, but it was Cameron Meyer of Mitchelton Scott taking the win there. Then moving over to stage three. Julian Alphilippe, quick step floors. Again, quick step floors is absolutely dominating. 60th win of the season. You know, they're doing it on the biggest of stages. Giro, Tour de France, Volta Espana, one-day races in the Classics. They've just been absolutely dominating this season. And so, again, Julian Alphilippe was able to pull off the win in Stage 3 over likes of Patrick Bevan, 
Andre Greipel, Connor Swift was in that mix. Caleb Ewan was in that mix. Walt Poles again. Uh, Tom Piddock. So some big names in there that Julian Alphilippe overcame, and he is of quick step floors. And then looking at the general classification, after stage three, we have Patrick Bevan of BMC Racing. He is tied at the leaderboard with Cameron Meyer of Mitchelton Scott. You got Julian Alphilippe just two seconds back of quick step floors. He is, uh, yeah, two seconds back. And then from there, some other big names that we got. Walt Poles. Fifth place, he is 12 seconds back. Yeah, Bob Youngles, quick step floors, he is 12 seconds as well. Primos Roglic, Lotto and El Yumbo, 12 seconds back as well. And so Walt Pauls is uh, fifth overall, 12 seconds back. And he has a couple of decent domestiques in Team Sky, such as Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas, who I've been told are pretty, pretty strong riders, I think. Thomas has won a Tour de France or was like up in the top mix, something like that. And then Froome has won. I think Froome has won a Tour de France as well. I can't, uh, can't necessarily put my finger on it. But, yeah, so there his, uh, his, there is Domestiques, which I think anybody would be happy to have Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas be your Domestique as Thomas won this year's Tour de France. Chris Froome's won four Tour de France's. He's won a Volta and a Giro. The last four Grand Tours have been won by either one of those two guys, and they are Walt Paul's domestique, which they're doing it. And it's been great to listen to some interviews of those two guys because Chris Froome especially, he's like, you know, Walt has been there at every single – he's been by my side, you know, through through most of those wins, if not all of those wins. And he's just so happy to give it back and be a domestique for – for while in this race and give him some GC hopes, especially in kind of a, you know, Team Sky is based in the UK. They're branded as a UK cycling team. And so being in the Tour of Britain, being kind of on home soil, uh, it's cool for cool for while. And then also uh, Garen Thomas, I mean, being a, a Welsh or being a Welsh rider, he is getting absolute stardom at the Tour of Britain. He even got a velodrome named after him and a massive picture of him on the on the building is up now of him f- flying the Welsh flag in his yellow at uh, on the Champs-Élysées. So that is really cool for him, and I'm sure he's absolutely soaking that up. It looks like he's having a blast, but I'm not there. I don't know for sure. looks like he's enjoying his time. So that is uh, that kind of rounds out our racing news and then what we got around the rest of the world that is pro cycling you have team aqua blue and if you haven't heard team aqua blue is folding and this story has been developing literally every single day for the past week and so why are they folding well there's been some uh you know mixed bag of exactly why it is so the first thing that we heard was they are folding because they just couldn't get enough race invitations therefore they couldn't generate enough money they couldn't uh, get enough for their sponsorships stuff like that in which they really didn't have any sponsorships in a way because they were uh, they they built this team to be self-funded off of sales that they were selling on an e-commerce site online which i did check that out for the first time and there's a lot of good a lot of good bike stuff on there it's kind of secondhand used bike stuff in a way some new stuff 
It's uh, aquabluesport.com, I believe. So uh, check it out. You might get some aqua blue kits really cheap now that they have folded. But basically, they just couldn't sustain as a team. And then more and more, the story started to develop. Rick Delaney, the team, the head of the team, he did an interview with the Cycling Podcast and kind of opened up a little bit more about his side. And basically, he was saying that 3T, their bike sponsor, was terrible to work with. Now, he I'm paraphrasing to a certain extent because he himself did not get into it too highly, I think, to be you know kind of politically correct and try to stay within the legal realm of what's going on. But he said there was a lot of problems with that partnership, that sponsorship that was going on with 3T. And that's the point I want to focus on is 3T was the bike partner for Aqua Blue, and a lot of waves were stirred at the beginning of the year because their bike included two things that were controversy. One, it only came in a disc brake model, and second, it was a one-by system, so only one chain ring up front. And uh, from what I have picked up online, you're usually riding a 50-tooth chain ring up there, so not as big as most chain rings, but still a big chain ring, especially if you're trying to climb. And so in the beginning of the year, everybody seemed cool with it. A lot, a lot of news publication came out saying that one buy is the future. But as the season went on, no aqua blue riders were getting wins when they should have been getting wins. And I guess there's been a lot more problems with 3T other than the fact of just the one buy system. And then Team Aqua Blue was told that they were going to get a two-by bike, but I don't think that ever came. And so now their team has folded and stopped racing for the rest of the year. You know, usually if your team is going to fold, it's at the end of the season. They were told like three days before the Tour of Britain that they weren't riding the Tour of Britain. And Team Wiggins was able to take their spot. But nonetheless, all these riders just lost a job within a week's week's time frame. So every single day it feels like something more is coming out about why this disbanded but Adam Blythe was on a podcast with Bradley Wiggins and talked about you know his side of the story and and uh, the question was asked on the podcast why did the team fold and just straight out Adam Blythe said 3T the bikes sucked you know and again I'm paraphrasing but for someone to say that the, the sole reason for them folding was their bikes I mean, that's pretty incredible. Usually it's some kind of funding issue, which I'm guessing there was funding in this as well. But just to say that bikes is the biggest reason that your team folded, that sucks. You know, because as a rider, you have absolutely no control over that. You might have some control over funding, you know, depending on are you giving it your all? Are you going out in those breaks to get your sponsor TV time if you need to do that? Are you picking up stage wins? You know, you can kind of influence whether or not your sponsor is getting enough airtime, TV time, podium time, stuff like that. But you have no control over over what bikes you guys get. And especially if you're having troubles with your bikes, you're locked into a contract. And there's legal ramifications if you break that contract. So Adam Blythe, he just kept talking about how being on that one buy, you, you just get absolutely so tired if you're doing a a race with a lot of hills. He says it's tough enough to finish a one-day race, let alone a three-day race, then a week-long race. He, he, he's just, it's not possible on this one by system and he basically was like i'm riding a track bike with some gears on the back and you know for a hilly stage pro racing just didn't seem like 
you know, it, they, they, it wasn't sustainable on that bike. So Adam Blythe, rider for Aqua Blue, summed it up to it was the bike's fault. And it was 3T who was at fault uh, for that for the demise of the team, which was very interesting to hear. And I want to get on in some tech news. I want to see talk about how that 3T bike is going to be affected in the market because 3T has put a ton of money into advertising for this bike and then to have riders come out at the highest of level and say this bike sucks it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, that plays out in the market so before we finish pro news want to touch on mark cavendish of dimension data last podcast the news came out that he has been diagnosed with bar epstein virus he is done for the season which he's had a pretty abysmal season in uh, the Manx missiles terms as he is one of the greatest riders of all time one of the greatest, uh, he, he is second to Eddie Merckx in stage wins in the Tour de France. And so, you know, he's in cycling royalty there, but has had a pretty abysmal season. And there's definitely, he, he seems like he's in limbo right now. And it's probably just the hot topic of what people are talking about because because they can. And I'm going to talk about it because I can as well. And uh, yeah, so he, his contract is ending with Dimension Data at the end of this year. It's been reported, reported that Dimension Data has offered him a contract at a 40% decrease in price, which will he take that? Will he weigh other things that are going on in his life? He's a father. He's married. A lot of other things going on as well. Also, Team Sky might be in the mix, which is really interesting because he used to race for Team Sky. Would he go back to a team where he is definitely not the leader of a team and a team that he would not be able to ride the Tour de France in? Because I would assume that one of his big goals is to beat Eddie Merckx's record of stage wins in the Tour de France. So definitely interesting there. And it seems like his his future outlook is a little bit up in limbo. So that's where we're going to end on a depressing note on the pro news cycle. See what I did there? Cycle, cycling, pro news. It was pretty good, I thought. After a nice swig of water, that is going to transition us into tech news. Because nothing is more techy than the first ever tech of water. That is not true. That's a completely made up. Completely made up. But one of the elements in water is carbon. Actually, it's not because it's H2O. But carbon is a big thing in the world and also a big thing in cycling. And I alluded to the fact that I have the bike for your newly born child. And what is that bike? Well, it's a carbon strider. A carbon strider. Now, if you don't know what a strider is, this bike is for toddlers. It has a bike seat. It has two wheels, has a nice fork, but just a chainstay if you want to call it. You know, so there's no gears on it. There is no pedals. There's no cranks, no bottom brackets. This is a fork with a front wheel up to handlebars with one tube coming down. So you could call that the uh, top bottom tube. You can call it what you want. Top bottom tube coming into a seat post and then a chain stay slash seat stay. Yeah, we'll go with that. So no triangle in there, but it is called a strider. And it's for toddlers, and so they can steer with the with the handlebars and then they use their feet as momentum with no pedals 
And yes, they have like Strider World Championships. So if you want to get your toddler out there racing at the youngest of levels, they do have a Strider World Championships, but he needs or she needs to be riding this bike because it is all carbon. So it is going to be the lightest, the stiffest, the fastest option that you can get. And why not spend $899 to get your toddler on the fastest bike that they could probably be riding or shall I say striding on? Mm, striding strider so yeah this is uh you know and and a lot of this stuff will come out and be like oh that's so you know obsessive and you know you don't need that but hey if you have the money and you want to get your kid into cycling this is freaking awesome you might as well get it for him 899 dollars it's not outrageous it's a lot for a toddler bike i totally understand that but there is a, a lot more outrageous bikes out on the market. So if you got the money, might as well spend it on your toddler and really class them up to start with. The only downside is you really can't go back from this. If you get them carbon at two years old, how are you going to give them give them an aluminum bike at, say, six years old? So you're, you're locked into carbon for life, I would say, if you do go with this bike. But yes, carbon strider out on the market. And it is, you know, it's a pretty slick looking bike. Definitely go give it a check out. Uh, Carbon Strider. Brand name is called Strider. As far as I know, the bike itself is the Carbon Strider. So very straightforward name, which is nice because a lot of these bike names get very confusing after a while. Yes, Carbon Strider in tech news. And so the other part that I want to talk about is another Carbon bike is the 3T bike. 3T Strata. That's what Aqua Blue was riding. And like I said, at the beginning of the year, they came out and made big waves in the industry with this one by bike. And at the time, I thought that was really cool. You know, we are going new places with biking. We're going to go, we're not just going to stick to the traditional stuff. We're going to innovate. We're going to make new things. We're going to do disc brakes. We're going to do one by. And I thought it was a great idea because especially myself, I ride, you know, here in Minnesota, there's not big climbs, it's flat, it's hilly, you know, I feel like most of the time I'm either going up a hill or down the hill, but I stick in my big ring most of the time, I got a 54 on my big ring, I stick there majority of the time, I use my small ring to warm up, cool down, every once in a while I'll flip into it, especially on like longer rides where I'm just trying to save some watts, save some energy, but for the most part I stick in that big ring, so I was like, I... I think I could do one by. I think that's all I would need out on the road here in Minnesota with my environment is a one by system. And that's what 3T was pushing. You know, they uh, on the gravel scene, cyclocross scene, mountain bike scene, that's already taken over that one by system. Maybe not on the gravel and cross scene, but it's definitely very popular. And there doesn't seem to be as many problems with it out on the road. But there was definitely mixed feelings, mixed emotions about how a one by system was going to work out on the road and road racing, especially in the pro peloton. And if you follow bicycling trends, you know, advertising, stuff like that, if the pros don't do it on the roadside, you're not going to see it trickle down to the consumer market for the most part you know when new things come out it's got to be accepted by the pros for other people to accept it in the most part in the most part but the dumb thing about that is we're not like the pros we don't ride like the pros we don't ride in the same conditions that the pros ride in 
and for the majority of consumers, we don't need what the pros need. But due to marketing, due to perception, due to familiarity with seeing stuff on TV, seeing a pro using it, we believe that we need what the pros need. And I am I fall victim to that all the time. So it's not like I'm saying I'm above anybody here. If I see a pro use it, of course I want to use it. I want to use the best. But I really think what's going to happen here with Aqua Blue just coming out, and they kind of are tarnishing the name. I wouldn't say that they're just you know, over and above and over the top saying that this is terrible and posting it everywhere as possible. But it's definitely not good for 3T. Definitely not good because they pumped a lot of money into advertising, doing things with uh, the Global Cycling Network on YouTube, running a ton of banner ads. I feel like I see them all the time when I'm on cycling websites. And just kind of here and there, I've seen a lot about this 3T Strata bike and 3T in general. Now, they've been good making stems and handlebars and stuff like that, but now really getting into the bike market. And this could really, really affect how their sales are going to do in the future because if the pros aren't accepting it, why would we accept it as consumers? And there, there is a, uh, I don't know if it's out yet, but a 3T Strata 2 buy. Like I said, don't know if it's out yet, but it was definitely in the works, if not actually out on the market. And I think after this, they have to come back out with that two by bike for the road and give that option to people of either running it as a one by or a two by because if the pros aren't going to accept it, we're just not going to accept it as consumers. I think that's that that's pretty simple. And like I said, it, it kind of sucks that it is that way because us as consumers don't exactly need what the pros need because we're not racing day in and day out on hilly mountain stages. We're just not. And I, I may. N- there may be a lot of people out there who actually are riding that stuff, especially if you live in places that have mountains like Colorado. But here in Minnesota, it is generally flat. I don't need something like that. So I don't want to assume that nobody else needs it, but I'm just making an educated guess from my viewpoint that most of us don't need what the pros need. But I think you definitely, 3T is going to have to do that two-by system. They're not going to be able to rely on that one-by for the road scene. And I'm, sp- I'm specifically talking on the road scene, but we're going to see a dramatic effect of how the pros directly impact what we're able to buy, what's being shown to us. And if new innovations come out, usually it's tested through the pro ranks before we're really able to get it on the consumer market. And if it fails there, it's probably not going to do well on the consumer market in the road section. And I'm sticking to the road section because the gravel bikes, pros are not using gravel bikes in racing. Oh, except if you're talking about like the Dirty Kanza, but I'm talking about the the UCI World Tour. They are not using gravel bikes and yet they're a massive trend. So again, sticking to the road scene. So that's what I got in tech news. So Carbon Strider for your newly born child and 3T bikes, guessing the one buy is going to go away, at least for now, on the road scene because of Aqua Blue folding and Aqua Blue basically saying that 3T one buys suck. So, on to maintenance news. Swapping out your cleats. I don't know what style of cleats you use, but if you use road, it's probably a triangle and it's probably made of some kind of plastic. And yes, those do need to be replaced. I ride Shimano. I ride the yellow ones. It has six degrees of float. That is what I like. You can also get the blue Shimano ones that are two degree float and red, which are a zero degree float. 
look has their own system and it's kind of that similar one each style of cleat has its own amount of float in there and float is how much you can move your feet while they are locked into those pedals <clears throat> but if you let those cleats get worn out you will start to have more and more float in those pedals which is not good if you have locked yourself into a position and you do not feel pain in that position if you let those cleats get too worn out you will start to have knee issues like it will happen so if you see that your cleats are worn out and how can you tell if your cleats are worn out well, if that main color, minor yellow, if they look like they are, you know, more of like a, you didn't drink enough water, piss yellow. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. <laughs> Terrible analogy for that. But if they look beaten, if they look battered, if they look scratched, if they look like they've had a better day or two, they're probably time to replace them. You know, once a year is a good benchmark to set, but you might have to do them sooner or earlier, if you are someone to walk on rough roads, walk on roads in general, walk a lot in your shoes. And now I am not saying that you can't walk in road shoes. I do it all the time, but I am very careful of how I walk because I want to I want to save those cleats as long as possible because it, it definitely affects the fit. It affects the efficiency of my pedaling and they need to be replaced. So when to swap them out, there is also little notches, at least on Shimano cleats, that show you how worn that yellow part is. If that is getting down to that last line in there, I would say look to replace it. If you have one of those yellow parts starting to come off or there is non-existent yellow in that part, definitely time to replace. So what do you do when you have to replace your cleats? Because that where that cleat is set right now, if it feels good to you, you want to keep that as much as possible. So what are some good ways to do that? Well, there's two options, at least two options that I like to use and to tell people that are very DIY, do it yourself. You don't really need any special tools to do this. You have a permanent marker Sharpie and you have electrical tape or some kind of tape that is thin in nature. So a Sharpie, if you feel comfortable putting a Sharpie to the bottom of your shoe, some people don't. I'd never do that to customer shoes. That would be I, you know, unless they like, were like, no, you can use a Sharpie, but otherwise do not use a Sharpie if you don't feel comfortable doing it, but you can do a Sharpie and outline as much of that cleat as you can outline, you know, usually you can't get the corners of it, but you can get the rest of the cleat. So outline that as best as possible. Take that cleat off, put the new cleat on, tighten it down real good. Very easy. Same thing with tape. You're just going to use tape as that outline and get that tape as close as possible to the edge of that cleat. Put the tape down, take the cleat off, put the next cleat on exactly in the confines of that tape, and you should be good to go. Now, I also recommend taking pictures before you put on new cleats. Find markers on your shoes of where your cleats are at. Use them as a guide to when you take off those cleats and put on new cleats that is a great way to make sure you are putting it back in that exact same spot take pictures before so then you can compare that picture to uh, when you put the new cleat on using those guidelines of a sharpie or electrical tape as well and the same applies if you are using a mountain style cleat and so that is a metal style cleat now those are going to last longer they're going to last longer especially if you're doing a lot of walking and so I definitely recommend that to people who are either new to cycling I think those are a little bit easier to clip in they are they come in walkable cleats or walkable shoes as well which I know is a big advantage to people just getting into it 
And so from that standpoint as well, if it looks like your cleat is absolutely beaten and battered, get new ones. But you can definitely go longer, I'd say, every two years, uh, something like that for for those type of cleats. But as well, use a Sharpie, use tape. You definitely have a smaller space to put it in. Uh, so I'd recommend more of a Sharpie in this spot um, and do the same thing. Take pictures before, put a Sharpie down, cleat in the same exact spot, and you are good to go. And once you get those new cleats on, what are you going to do? Go out riding, go out training. What are you going to bring to eat? How much are you going to eat? When are you going to eat it? How much should you eat? So what do the pros do when they are out riding? Now, it's always fascinating. I think when they go behind the scenes, they show what is in the pros musette feed bag, what they're eating out on the bike. I think it is always surprising, too, that they're drinking cans of Coke out on the bike. And uh, I just, oh, carbonation. I, I feel like I have a sensitive stomach, especially when I'm out riding. So this is going to be my perspective, but also throw in what the pros do to a certain extent. So one general rule of thumb when you're out on a ride, regardless of length, I would say, well, the pros when they're racing, they go from most solid food to most liquid of food. And why they do that, most solid of food in the beginning of your race, that is going to take the longest time to digest as opposed to, say, a gel at the end of a race, which is going to be the easiest to digest, going to be the quickest in your system. I think Phil Guyman did a really good video on this on his YouTube channel. And basically he was explaining, too, that, you know, if you eat a, a protein bar with 10 miles left in your race, it's really not going to get digested and in your system until you're done with the race. So there's no point needing that protein bar until after the race because it's, or yeah, until after the race, because it's not going to do you any good in those last 10 miles, you know? So he, he talked about starting with, you know, an energy bar to begin with, maybe two energy bars, depending on how long the race is, then moving into some kind of chewy, you know, goo has those blocks, Cliff has those blocks, so you doing blocks after that, kind of gummies, and then moving into your gels as the race progresses. And so I've definitely gone with this route, and I try to do that as much as possible. Depends on how far I am riding. You know, if I'm going out for a 20-mile really hard effort, I'll do a gel before my ride and bring a gel with me just in case I just don't feel great for those last efforts. But then if I'm going, you know, usually my rides are in that 30 to 40 miles and depending on how hard I'm going, I will bring an energy bar with me and an energy gel, possibly two energy gels, just to make sure I have one out on the ride if I'm really just not feeling great or I'm really feeling good and I want to push it even harder in that last bit of of my ride. But when I go on my long ride, such as 80 to 100 miles, something like that, that's where I start to bring in foods that are very easy to digest and easy for my stomach to process. And so I get away from the energy bars, energy gels for a little bit and go to some real food, such as a peanut butter sandwich, which it is amazing to listen to the pros and how many of them think a peanut butter sandwich, even SIS, think a peanut butter sandwich is one of the best things to eat out on a bike in combination with energy bars and energy gels. So when I'm out on a big, uh, let's say 100 mile ride, I will start with an energy bar, you know, maybe 10, 15 miles in, 
Then at about 20, 30 miles, maybe 35 miles, something like that, have another one. Then around that 50 mile mark, I'll switch it up with a peanut butter sandwich or something else that I bring along. Um, you know, peanut butter on white bread because that is going to be very easy for your your body to digest and for your stomach to handle. And then around 70, maybe maybe 60. I'll start popping into those energy gels and then maybe every 15 miles have an energy gel just to give me that, uh, to give me those carbs that I need, that energy that I need. Some have caffeine, some have electrolytes, some don't have any of that, but they have good amounts of sodium in them as well. So that's what I like to do out on the bike. And then I kind of follow that same path when I'm thinking about the water that I'm drinking and water I drink, I try to drink about every five minutes, at least take a sip if not a good couple swigs every 20 minutes, something like that. And a good rule of thumb is eat and drink before you are hungry or thirsty. It just, it sucks to bonk on a bike and I've learned the hard way um, bonking on a bike. And I used to not want to spend money on energy stuff while I'm out biking. I spend the money now because it is way more fruitful for my training rides. It is way more pleasant on the bike. I'm not coming home and just being dehydrated. I used to come home from some of these long rides and just lay on the couch the rest of the day because I was so dehydrated. I was so drained of my energy. And I thought that was because, well, maybe I just wasn't in shape. Maybe I, uh, I I need to get in better shape so I'm not that tired. But it came down to nutrition on and off the bike, uh, both those things, but specifically on the bike. I wasn't eating enough. I wasn't drinking enough. I wasn't drinking enough electrolyte stuff. So when it comes to drinks, I usually always have some kind of electrolyte drink, one or two of them. When I'm out on those longer rides, per se, I will do one bottle of electrolyte, then one bottle of water. I'll bring, say, a tab with me so I can refill that somewhere else, and I'll go through five to six water bottles, seven, eight, depending on how hot it is and how much I am burning on the bike. But on those long rides, I will definitely mix in sport drink, then water, sport drink, then water, just so that my stomach is not having a bunch of artificial stuff and having to break that all down while I'm out on those long rides. Now, short rides, it doesn't matter. Somewhere under 60, I would say I can have two bottles of electrolyte drink and feel just fine. And it doesn't seem to affect my performance at all. If anything, it, uh, or I shouldn't say negatively affect my performance. It, it, I definitely feel a, a boost when I'm drinking those electrolyte drinks. And when I talk about electrolyte, I'm talking about some kind of goo makes it science and sport makes it uh, some kind of electrolyte powder that you put into water it is definitely not super strong taste which super strong taste on a bike can just get old after a while like for me my taste buds change when I'm in those endurance modes and so something like a Gatorade it, it just absolutely grosses me out also your, your body is made to digest that kind of stuff uh, goo and science and sport it's specifically made to, to be for those endurance style rides, runs, stuff like that. You know, one time on a long 100-mile bike ride, I made the mistake of drinking Gatorade. I was so full. It had so much sugar in it. My, my stomach could just not process it while I was out on the bike, and it sucked for me. Now, it might work for other people. For me, it absolutely sucked. I like to keep it a light electrolyte drink, not that strong in flavor and not full of sugar and sodium and car- I get sodium and carbs are good, but in, in a way that's easy, easily digestible, which I felt like the Gatorade was not. So to wrap that up, 
eat. You want to eat about every 45 minutes. At least that is, that's my rule of thumb. That's what I use. And you want to go from the most solid to the most liquid, especially in a race form. But I tend to do that anyways on most of my rides. Unless I'm going out for a short ride, then I'll maybe just do a gel, something like that. On the water side, try to drink every five to six minutes, 20 minutes if you forget. And I go with an electrolyte drink, mix in some water on my longer rides with one, one bottle electrolyte, one bottle water. Shorter rides under 60 miles, usually just do two bottles of electrolyte mix, possibly refill with just regular water on the road if I run out of those two bottles. So that's what I got for training. And so this was episode eight. And I thank you so much for those of you tuning in to this podcast. You know, I'm just starting out on this podcast journey. I really love it. I really want to share my knowledge, you know, a little bit of my background as I work at, as a mechanic for VeloFix, the mobile bike shop. Come right to your house to do any and all bike stuff. Quick little plug for that. But I'm an avid cyclist. I love watching the Pro Tour, and I feel like I'm consuming new stuff every single day, and I just want to share that out with some people. So I thank you so much for giving it a listen. If you want to follow me even more, you can check me out on Instagram at CyclingWithWatts. Check me out on Twitter at CyclingWithWatts. That is spelled Cycling W-T-H, Watts, because I couldn't put an I in with, otherwise my Twitter handle was too long, so Cycling W-T-H Watts on Twitter. You can check out my blog at cyclingwithwatts.com. And then you can find this podcast anywhere that our podcast. I'm now on iTunes, which is cool. Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all that good stuff. So please share this if you liked it. Because again, I just want to share what I know to you guys because I want to get you out on your bike more. That's what this podcast is all about. I hope I can inspire you with some pro cycling stuff, educate you with that so you have something to talk about when you're out with your buddies out on a ride. Talk about tech news so you can know what to buy next, what not to buy next. Talk about maintenance because that's what uh, that's what I do now. And a lot of maintenance is just education on what to do and then training tips because I'm picking up training tips every single day as I'm starting to get more and more into the racing. I'm learning a lot and I just want to share that with people because there was a time, well, I'm still learning, but there was a time where I didn't know anything and I just wanted somebody to come down on my level and tell me what worked for them, what didn't work for them, share their insight from a non-pro level. So that is what I'm trying to do, get you out on your bike more. So again, thank you so much for tuning in to episode eight. We will be back not we, well, kind of we. I'm sitting here with my cat, Merks, named after the great Eddie Merks. So her and I, she is a she, still named after Merks, though. We'll be back on Friday, which will be, what, September September 8th? That sounds right, September 8th. Friday, September 8th. You'll be looking out for Cycling with Watts, episode 9. So we are going to end the show with that orchestra sting that you heard at the beginning Thank you again. Have a blessed rides. Until-